If you were in heaven and you're there for eternity, you've just arrived to begin eternity, there's no more pain, no more sickness, no more death, no more hurt, no more bad days. You're re reunited with all those people that have gone before that, that you knew would be there. You get to meet them and see them and share stories. It's glorious. But let me ask you a question. If Jesus was not there, would that still be heaven? It's a valid question, right? You see, before we jump into the vintage church, the early church of what we're trying to remind ourselves is the, <laughs> the authenticity of what God did in that day and what we want to do in this day, before we get to the vintage church, we have to recognize the modern church, where we're at right now, or probably more uh, directly between the eyeballs is the American church. See, my fear is that as the American church, or maybe my greater fear as, as conduit church, my fear is that a Jesus-less heaven isn't that big of a deal. You see, the whole mindset, the whole perspective and reality of heaven and eternity is Jesus. Jesus is heaven. He is the center of heaven. He, is, he will be the centerpiece of all of our worship forever and ever and ever. He is the way that we get there. He is the reason we want to go there. In the absence of Jesus for eternity, it's called hell. And so what we've done in American Christianity, in all of our comforts, in all the glories of this amazing country, and the gratefulness that we truly have for the things that we have every day, the comforts and the, and the things that, are, that aren't necessarily bad, but in the midst of this um, capitalistic, thriving, successful world that we live in, we lose complete sight of what eternity is about. We lose complete sight of what this life is all about. The, the context of hell wasn't the fire. The context of hell wasn't darkness. The context and the horribleness of hell wasn't how long it was. The hellish part of hell was there was no Jesus. There is no God. In fact, when in referring to eternal damnation, it says less in the word about the fire and says more about being separated from God. About a second death being not so much put in a place where torture is, but completely separated 
from the one who can relieve torture and can completely give us life eternally. To the point where hell wasn't created, uh, wasn't created directly for us. It wasn't. But in our perspective and because of our sin and rejection of God, that becomes a reality without Jesus. And so I just want to start out today just like this weighty thought, this weighty um, hard question I want you to really ponder. Why are you living? Why do you want to go to heaven? Of course, there's amazing things about no more pain and death and reuniting with those that have gone before. But guys, the reason we live the reason we should desire to be in heaven is because of him. I can't wait to see him. I can't wait to thank him. I can't wait to worship him. And the thought of that is, is, is humbling um, because I think of my sin. And I think of when I see Jesus, I think of falling and, and shame, but knowing his character him lifting me up, wondering why I'm feeling shameful. And it's the same for you. If we by faith have trusted Jesus, it's no different. That's, that's the gospel. We are in the Vintage Church series, and we're studying for a few weeks here, um, Timothy. Now, Timothy is a, uh, a leader in this Vintage Church, and he has come alongside of a guy that you've heard lots about, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, and how he has made his missionary journeys and how he has made progress, and the gospel has now begun to spread throughout the world. And, and after um, the Holy Ghost had come upon them, they were witnesses to Jerusalem and to Judea and Samaria, and now it's spreading to the uttermost parts, uttermost parts of the world. The gospel is spreading. And it's actually happening not so ideally, idealistic. It's not a, a perfect flow of, oh, this is just great. Everyone's hearing the good news. And it's just spreading like a wildfire. Not necessarily. It is spreading like a wildfire. But it's spreading mainly because the enemy is trying to shut it down. And so persecution has risen, and in some parts they're meeting in secret, but what's happening is that the gospel is really growing in uh, the rest of the world, to the Gentiles, and God is using uh, Gentile leaders to reach the Gentiles. He's using Jewish leaders to reach the Jews and the Gentiles, and one of these leaders is Timothy. Now, Timothy is a young leader, and it's made very clear. Um, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy that's where we're going to park in chapter 1 and 4 today. Um, Timothy, this is not a book that Timothy wrote. Surprising. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote Timothy. So if you're reading the book of Timothy, it's in the, later in the New Testament. It's a, it's a letter that Paul wrote to this young leader named uh, Timothy. Most likely, Paul wrote this letter from prison. Um, specifically the second Timothy. He wrote from prison. Paul was waiting 
<laughs> he was waiting his own execution for preaching and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. And so things, business was good, but business wasn't so good, if you understand what I'm trying to say. See, for them, it wasn't about numbers and growth, although they were spreading this gospel to the rest of the world. This was more about Jesus. This was more about the message of Jesus and the freedom that he offers. Paul knew that. Timothy knew that. Um, the, the best way that I, I feel I can set up the idea for Timothy and who he is is this. Uh, so much of leadership is taught in, these, in, in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy from Paul to Timothy. And I think that there's some, some things to learn here. An older gentleman is teaching, is writing, is mentoring a younger gentleman. And he's not just giving Timothy the opportunity to um, serve in the background or uh, go work with the kids or go work with the teens or go work with um, this or that. He's giving him full reign and full leadership to be able to do what Paul did. That is leadership. Now, obviously, some people would say, like, Paul, he's in jail, so obviously he can't do what he's, like, he's giving the job to someone else because he literally couldn't. But it was more than just the actual circumstance. It was, it was the heart behind it. Now, Timothy, uh, he caught not just the salvation of Jesus, but he caught the passion that Paul had. And there's a few things I want to read through. Um, my notes are actually uh, five lines, so um, it's not going to be a long day. Um, well, you laugh because you know me, and you know that may be long. Anyways, but um, what I have to share is mostly through this first part of Timothy. Verse 1, I know we hit, Pastor Cameron hit this a lot last week. I want to kind of skim through it as we set up to get to chapter 4. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, our Savior, in, of Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Lord. Guys, I, I really want to point out, this is important. Like, I know this is a letter from Paul to Timothy. It's a letter, but this is the inspired, inerrant word of God. God has preserved this over time so that we kind of were able to, like, pick up, remember those, remember the actual telephones that you, um, like that you actually were, had cords on them? Um, how we, you're in the house and there was like, if there was two phones, then there was an opportunity where you could pick up the phone um, and listen to the person's conversation or whatever. I'm sure none of you ever did that. Um, but here we had this opportunity to pick up the other line and listen to what was being shared from Paul to Timothy. Um, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love. The issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is what Pastor Cameron shared last week. 
that their aim, that their goal is love. And it's issues from a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. They truly were not jerks. They weren't just the guys that just showed up and said, all right, here's the gospel, take it or leave it, bye, see ya. They, these guys cared. These guys loved. These guys had the pure heart. They wanted to see life change, not just in those that they were leading, but them as leaders. Skip down to verse uh, 8. Now we know that the law is good. If anyone uses it lawfully, understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, and on and on and on. And he begins to talk about these specific things. So again, these guys were so full of love and a good conscience and a pure heart, and they cared and they wanted to help, but they by no means stood here and lived their life with a watered-down faith that anything goes. They had specific doctrine in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had true and full trust in who he was and what he did on the cross and how he rose from the dead and how he has given them this task to spread the gospel through the Great Commission. They were unapologetic about it, even if it cost them their life. They were shepherds. They were leaders. They were leaders among leaders that they were stewarded with. They were not power hungry. They were not controlling. They were not, okay guys, just let you know, my name's Timothy. I'm the new boss. Uh, I'm here to tell you what to do. That wasn't their heart at all. That's not what they did at all. They came in with love, but they came in firm. Firm on themselves and their personality? No. Firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Firm on eternal, eternal matters. Firm on the law of God, which they all knew since the beginning. Firm on the law being fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And now under grace, not that the law is irrelevant, but the law is completely fulfilled and absolutely relevant to their grace-filled, merciful life. They understood this. They got this. And this is what they continue to proclaim. They preached against sin. They preached against any darkness that violated a holy God because to them, it wasn't just about gaining friends or growing a church or meeting some uh, spiritual or church organization quota. They weren't like, okay, you guys, we, Jesus said uh, we were to go to the whole world and preach the gospel. Let's just like make it cool. Let's make it fun. No, they preached the gospel, period. They preached the word. Boldly. Timothy was no different than the disciples. No different than these, these uh, characters that we've hit the last few months. These characters that were fully given with all of their heart and all of their mind and even died for the gospel. Died for this message. And now spend eternity with the one that, of which they died for. Christ Jesus came to save sinners, verse 12, and through the rest of the chapter, it talks about good warfare and holding faith of the good conscience. Um, talking about specific people that made shipwreck their faith, that literally abandoned walking, 
because they also weren't naive. They also understood that the way of the cross was difficult. They also understood that this was not an easy task. It wasn't easy being a Christian. This is hard for us to understand in American Christianity because, let's be honest, it's easy to be a Christian. It's not easy to be a Christian, but it's easy to be a Christian. Does that make sense? In the world that we live in. For them, it wasn't. And so some couldn't take the heat. Not because they didn't love grace, not because they didn't want their sins uh, to be forgiven, but they simply, under the pressure and under the weight of persecution, decided to forsake themselves away from other Christians. Decided to follow, to be released to Satan. I want to jump in chapter 4. I want to jump to chapter 4, verses, um, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 6. Just a few verses here. Um, it says, if we put these things before the brothers, what things? Just all that they had covered at this point in this letter about those people that had departed from the faith. Before that, talking about the mystery of godliness, the qualifications of the deacons, qualification of the elders and the overseers, how the church should run, how the church should grow, how the church should function, all these very, very important things, which I know we're going to hit some of that um, in the next few weeks. But these things you will be good to share with the brothers because you are a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of the faith and of all the good doctrine that you have followed have nothing to do with irrelevant, silly myths. Rather, train, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is some, has some values, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. He's simply using the analogy of our physical bodies. It's good to exercise. It's good to grow muscle. It's good to live a healthy life. But much more so, the spiritual. Much more so, the things that won't perish. In our lives as American Christians, this is so easy for us to get caught in this life. This life is so important. It's the here. It's the now. It's what we feel. It's what we taste. It's what we live. It's what we're trying to bring. It's what we're trying to buy. It's what we're trying to work for. We get caught in this, and we lose complete sight of eternity. Timothy knew that, and that's why Timothy is calling out the obvious nature of what's happening here. Yes, it's okay to work out. Yes, it's okay to work your body, to, to bend your body, to train your body to a specific thing. But what will last forever is the soul, not the body. Our earthly body. Verse 9, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For this, for to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Command to teach these things. Let no one despise you of your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct. In love, 
and faith and purity until I come. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy. When the council of elders laid their hands on you, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that you may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself, on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save yourself and your hearers. Why am I covering so much? I want you to see the big picture of what Timothy and Paul are going after. It's no different than what Jesus was going after. It's no different than what the disciples were going after. But this right here, this is it. Verses 10. Sorry, I couldn't find it for a second. Are you with me? Are you looking at verse 10? You got to see this again. This is where we're parking. For to this end. Like, this is our goal. This is our aim. We toil and we strive and we work and we run and we do all of these things. Why? Because we have our hope set on a living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. This screams to me eternity. They knew at the end of their day that it wasn't about this little town they'd run to and see how this church was doing or, or they'd go to this city and they'd gather the church together and they'd say, okay, all right, everybody good. We're checking on some things. We want to encourage you. We want to exhort you. We want to preach the gospel. We want other people to know, of course, this most all-inclusive gospel of Jesus Christ that all can be forgiven and all can be set free of their sin. Not just that, but they wanted everyone to understand what it was like to live. To live now is to understand what it means to live for eternity. To live now is to understand what it truly means to live for eternity. And they knew that. That's why they're saying, we toil and we strive and we work and we run because we know we're living for the hope of a living God. We will see him again. And we cannot wait to, live or to see him again. They were not preaching because of the growth that was happening. They were not preaching because of all the amazing uh, healings and miracles and things that God was doing in the vintage church. They were living and preaching, and they were obedient because of a living God who was ever-present through the Holy Spirit inside of them. And they knew that God was the Holy Spirit, and they knew that he was living, and he knew, they knew that he was filling them and working through them and comforting them and showing them and leading them and speaking through them and speaking to them. They knew that, but they also knew that God was a father. They knew that God was the ultimate father, creator, who had done and put all things together and orchestrates all things. But they also knew that someday they would see the man again that was seated at the right hand of this father. They knew that they would meet him, the one who paid the price for their sin. The one by which they have faith in. The one by which they've put their whole lives leaning on. They knew that. Eternity was on their mind. 
Now, I, I don't... Um, circumstance didn't work out for me this morning, but I desired, so you just have to imagine, all right? I imagine tying a string from that hook. You see it? All the way across to this hook. And a string just coming right across. And it wasn't a zip line, all right? <laughs> Contrary to popular belief, what you might think I would try. But it was a simple analogy to understand time. Um, this whole string that you see, it's white. Can you see it? It represents eternity, which is a, it's a stupid analogy because eternity goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. But for analogy's sake, because we're so finite in our minds, if I was to take um, a clothesline, a clothespin, and clip it right here, from there to here, it represents your 80 years, 65 years, 37 years. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Your, I don't know. But this represents your life. And that represents your eternity. And actually, the reality is I could keep going. It's eternity. Like, I, I get it. I get that our lives are so here and now. And, and especially as, like, parents or, or if you're, you, you have a job, you, you, you have things that you're working on, you have projects, you have, you have like, like, circumstances you're working through or, or physical ailments. Like, there's certain things that make time just fly. And I get that. I get that we get caught here in this life. But we cannot lose sight of the whole big picture of all of eternity, of the point of this, and the man that will meet us there, Jesus, the God-man, the one by which we can even approach a holy God. So I have this perspective from Paul to Timothy, that he was supposed to go preach the gospel, grow these churches, lead. Leadership. If, if Timothy has a theme, it's leadership. Leadership. Now, what is leadership? Leadership is, I guess you could say, a culture of leaders. It's what, what is that leader's culture? Well, that's, their, that's the type of leadership that they have. The Bible has a lot of things to say about leadership. And Timothy has, or excuse me, Paul to Timothy, has a lot of things to say about leadership. A lot of things that we're going to cover, but today I, I simply want to give you three things about leadership that I don't want you to miss. So if you take, I'm not a three points person, but here we go. All right? Write these down. Even feels weird to say that. I don't think I've ever used three points. Um, number one, don't miss the big thing. If, if, if Timothy or Paul 
or these early apostles from the, from the vintage church showed up at Conduit today. I have a feeling they would talk about this. Don't miss the big thing. So, uh, back in February, uh, in fact, it was Super Bowl Sunday, my wife and I went on a trip a few days away. We went to um, Toronto, Canada. And we, uh, my wife's homeland, and we rolled into this city, uh, this little town called Toronto. And if you've been there, it's, it's actually an amazing city. And, and we were staying at this, um, this home away, uh, like an Airbnb kind of place. And it was, at, it was on the 56th floor of this, this apartment complex. 56 floors up. Terrified of heights. Great idea, Corey. Um, but I'll never forget, uh, and it's not like we had a GPS, and we're almost there. Like, we're getting close. It says we'll be there in just a couple minutes. And it wasn't, like, in French or anything, like the GPS. Um, but there was something about it inside me, and I don't know if you remember this, Brian, but there was something about, like, being almost there and so excited about these days and so excited about, like, no kids and, like, just, it was, like, awesome, right? We were, like, pumped. That anxiety filled my heart and my mind. And it was like, because I was afraid we weren't going to find this place. And it wasn't like a hotel or something that you could Google. And, and it was a, it was a, uh, <laughs> I won't get into that. Uh, it was, I was nervous to find the place, right? And I'll never forget, I didn't factor in the big thing. We're, we exit off the interstate. And it says we're like almost there. It says turn right. And we get on this like ramp. And it felt like, especially when you don't know where you're going, it felt like we were doing this forever. And I just had this feeling like, wait a minute, we're, we're lost. Or like, where, what are we doing? And it was, a, it was the most sharp, bizarre, like, cur- yeah, curve thing, I, uh, off-ramp, I think they call it, not curve thing. Um, off-ramp I had ever experienced, right? And I didn't think anything of it. Come around and finally get to the stop sign, stop light, and it says your destination is on your left. And I'm like, what? Oh, right? And I'll never forget this. And like it hit me later on, standing on the 56th floor, looking down, and everything is so small. Like, you like squash that car and squash that car. And literally, I looked down, and I saw that off-ramp. It was legit. I mean, it was like a perfect circle. I mean, they didn't even think about, like, that steering wheels can actually turn that, or that cars can turn that fast, but, or that sharp. But looking down and seeing it, it gave me such a clear, clear perspective of everything. And I almost felt so silly for being anxious. I missed the biggest, one of the biggest buildings in one of the biggest cities in the world. Unreal. In our lives, I feel like we miss sometimes the biggest things that are so obvious. I mean, how many times have you heard, or this could even be the message of Timothy and Paul to us, how many times have we heard that God loves us? But yet, that's the skyscraper right in front of our eyes that we're anxious about. Is it actually really there? Does God really love us? How many times does it say in the word that the just 
The, the forgiven will live by faith. And so it's your faith and your trust in what Jesus did on that cross and his sacrifice for you that saves you, that pays the penalty for your sin. It's like the sky, it's like so big and obvious, but yet sometimes we're anxious about, is it really there? We can't trust God. We can't lean into him. We can't run after him because we're missing the big thing. And we get caught in so many other things, but it's right there. And I can guarantee you this, that the moments that we've missed of forgetting God's love and his mercy and his sacrifice, I can guarantee you for eternity, we're going to be on that 56th floor, so to speak, and look down and look how silly that was. And we're going to be affirmed forever and ever and ever of his love. We're going to be affirmed and reminded of his forgiveness. We're going to be affirmed and, and reminded of, of his mercy. We're going, to be, we're going to be reminded and looking down on what he did for us and how like that makes perfect logical sense. Of course he paid the penalty for my sin. Of course he's given me this. Of course this inheritance is all mine. Sharing with him. Unbelievable. Sometimes we miss the big things. Don't miss the big things. God's love and his forgiveness and his sacrifice for you. Number two, sometimes we, <laughs> sometimes we trip on the small things. So number two, don't trip on the small things. So, don't trip on the small things. In 1911, anybody know a guy named, well, obviously you don't know him anymore, but do you know, ever heard of a guy named Bobby Leach? Okay. Apparently he wasn't that legendary. Bobby Leach got in a barrel in 1911, and he rolled over Niagara Falls, and he lived. Check this out. I, sorry, I shouldn't laugh. He later, years later, he lived through this, guys. Like, imagine that story. Uh, years later, he actually tripped on an orange peel, fell, was injured, and because of that injury, got infected, and he died. Talk about the analogy. I mean, this is past, like, uh, Dr. Heimlich, all right? <laughs> Bobby Leach, he tripped on the small stuff. I mean, he made it over Niagara Falls in a barrel, for goodness sakes. And, and by no means, are we exempt from an orange peel? Oh, man, knock on wood. Like, I, I, I hopefully that's not the issue. But the point of it here is that the, it was the small things that got him. Timothy, you read through this. Paul's perspective in all of Paul's letters. Read, read Corinthians. Read the, read the letter that he wrote to some of these churches in the cities of, of Corinth or Philippi or Thessalonica, and he begins to talk about these little things. There's these little, he's not belittling the small things. He's calling out the little things and how that is becoming a part of somebody's life, and it's owning them. 
relational conflict, owning them. What that person said about them, owning them. What they're not, or what they don't look like, or some physical thing they change about them, owning them. Just my fear is for Paul, for Timothy, when they're saying that we are going to toil and we're going to run and we're going to strive towards the hope of a living God, they're without a doubt saying they're not going to get caught up, stressed out, consumed by the small things. What small things are owning you right now? In the church. Can I be honest with you? No? Okay. (laughs) Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, When you walk in, my, my question would be, are you caught up on what conduit is not? rather than what conduit is. I could park there for a couple hours, but it's a heart issue. You come into a place, whether it's church or your work or your home, and you come into a place and you're, you're affected, and we all get there, but you're affected by this, that, or the other, and you miss the big thing, and you miss the point. And you miss the function and you miss the purpose of what is back to church, what church is even supposed to be. This is a place where we gather. Thank God we have a place that we can gather and worship Jesus without fear of persecution, without fear of imprisonment, without fear of anything. And some of us don't even want to come because we're tired or we had a busy Saturday. Tell that to the 90,000 Christians around the world last year. In 2016, 90,000 that were murdered because they loved Jesus. I'm not sure if I want to serve anymore. Tell that to the videos that I know you've seen and I've seen where Bibles get smuggled into places like China or India or places and they open these bags and there's just random, not even great leather bound with my name on the front, Bibles. And kids are like, pushing each other out of the way because they're holding the Word of God, their own Bible. And I've got like 17. This is happening today. This is the modern church. Where a video I saw on Easter a couple weeks ago of all these Christians in a small village in Iraq that gathered on Easter morning at a Christian church to celebrate a risen Jesus. Their church, literally, half of it is in rubble, and the other half is leaning. And they all come running in, praising Jesus. This is a couple weeks ago. Blows my mind. Like, they have the right mindset. Yes, horrific, horrible. We need to be praying for them. But, like, who are we to, like, walk in this church or walk in our own minds to like for a moment take for granted what we have or what this place is supposed to be or what our mission is in this city, a city of Jamestown or what we're supposed to be doing in our homes. 
or what we're supposed to be doing in relationship with others, to our spouse, and serving them, and loving them, and our kids, and preparing the way, and us men, to you ladies, helping you fly and flourish and be believed in, and for you ladies, to the, to the men, to know that they, are being, that they are leading well, and they are being believed in, and you women, that you are leading, and that you kids are being believed in as parents are clearing the way for you to know the knowledge of God, and for you to live it out in your life, and for Jesus to be completely consuming you, and for all this to happen, like we lose sight of the big eternal perspective, because we get caught in the little things. And my challenge to you today is this. It's heavy. It's weighty about this passage. It's weighty about where Timothy was, where Paul was in this. The guy is writing all this from prison. We ought to be the first to serve our kids. We ought to be the first to be in nursery. We ought to be the first to clean up junk. We ought to be, where's Jessica? We ought to be the first to iron wrinkled tables before dinner church last night. We ought to be the first in line to catch the puke or change the diaper or clean the room. We ought to be the first in line because it's not about us. And it's not about my hands getting dirty. It's about the King of kings and the Lord of lords who someday I will stand in front of and give an account for my life, for what I did with my body, for what I did with my life, for what I did with my money. Not because of salvation. My salvation, I'm talking right now to those of us that have received Jesus by faith, and trusted him, and we receive salvation. We will still stand before judgment, before Jesus. And talks about, Paul talks about that again in Corinthians. And God's not sweating the small stuff. That's not what the judgment seat of Christ is about. If anything, the judgment seat of Christ is about a reward ceremony. <laughs> but, like, it's not necessarily that there's no tears in heaven. In fact, it says... God will wipe away our tears. There will be tears. In fact, in context to that, that, the judgment seat of Christ, it says that many will suffer loss. Have you ever been into an award ceremony where you didn't get anything? <laughs> I mean, in it, for all analogy's sakes, sake, he, he uses the analogy of everything being put to the test of fire. Everything in your life, every decision, every thought, every action, everything you do. Put on the fire. I've got this thing in my backyard. Um, ben calls it my incinerator. Um, literally, just boxes, wood, whatever. And what I've noticed is <laughs> I, it's kind of a science thing in my backyard sometimes because I've noticed, oh, that doesn't burn, <laughs> right? Like, that doesn't burn away like I had anticipated, right? That is essentially the judgment seat of Christ. Our reward, our crown that we will throw at Jesus' feet will be the things that don't burn away. What will burn away, wood, hay, stubble, it says, are the things that don't matter, the things that were temporary, the things were about our body or our temporal, our pleasure, or the immediate petty things that we get caught up, the little things that eat us, the little things that own us. That is what will be burnt up. And Timothy and Paul are calling it out. They're saying this is leadership. Leadership is looking past those little things and getting caught up in the main thing. What is the main thing? It's Jesus. What is the main thing? It's love. What is the main thing? Relationship. 
What is the main thing? It's the word of God. What is the main thing? Your church. Not over Jesus, but you understand what I'm trying to say. The main thing is your church. You're not forsaking the gathering together with other believers. It's important. We're not a legalistic church. We never will be, ever. But we want you here. It's important that you're here. Every week. We miss you. Others miss you. Consistency matters. Because eternity matters. And if it's about others knowing this Jesus, if it's about the kingdom of God happening on this earth, then it's about us stepping through the small things so we can live out the main thing. Last thing, number three, suffer well. Suffer well. I know that's deep. Um, Suffer well. Toil. Strive. Toil. Strive. We toil. We strive. We toil. We strive. We toil. We strive. We toil. We strive. There's nothing about those words that communicate that this is easy. Um, I, I know I was kind of bashing on how good we have it as American Christians, but, but let's face it too, I, I, I fully understand and live in the reality that, that we hurt and that we suffer. Jesus talks about the suffering a lot. The, oh, the theme of Scripture is suffering at times. The theme of every story from beginning, from Adam and Eve to John writing the book of Revelation. Struggle. Suffer. I mean, there's Job, yes, but there's David. He suffered because of his own self-inflicted bad decision. He suffered. We suffer as people. And when we suffer, we have this opportunity to lean into him, to have the ultimate hope in our striving and in our toil, or we have this opportunity to suffer like the world suffers, to numb it, to find immediate pleasure, to find relief in something else, maybe great, maybe okay, or maybe horribly destructive. But any suffering being aided outside of Jesus is not going to help in the long run. We, as Christians, we need to be established and known for suffering well. Leaders, moms, dads, teachers, business leaders, friends, daughters, sons, learn to suffer like Jesus. Learn to suffer well. And what does it look like to suffer well? Suffering well is not just like a... Mm-hmm. This hurts, but I'm going to smile. I'm going to fake it till I make it. Like, that's not suffering well. I think the ultimate example of suffering well is a God who suffered for us. He suffered well. He was given for you. And even in the midst, moments from death, not pointing blame, 
actually owning something he didn't even do, and yet calling out to his father to forgive those that inflicted that pain on him. He suffered well. He didn't complain. He leaned into God with it. He called on the name of God, and he suffered well. We as leaders, men and women, boys and girls as leaders, we have got to suffer well. We have got to trust the Lord in it. We've got to lean in to it. We have to run to him. We have to listen to the Holy Spirit and his filling and his leading and knowing what that suffering is all about. Because one day we won't suffer. Think about that. Like in this life, this small chunk will suffer. Just as Jesus did when he came and lived his life. He suffered. There's plenty of time to not suffer. The day is coming with no death, no pain, no crying, no sickness, no saying goodbye, nothing. No bad day. No bad day. But may we suffer well now as it shows our testimony and it shows a picture of what Christ did. Not suffer so that we can receive salvation. I'm not trying to earn something. He already paid for that. But we're suffering as we grow. We're suffering as we learn. We're suffering as we toil. We're suffering as we strive forward to be who He desires us to be. I want that. I want that so bad for you, and I want that so bad for me. It's for this loves you, 